I've been in churches where I've led the music ministry and it's like 70 people and you like you serve every like three weeks. I've been in churches where like I've had to do what I just did, which is what I hate to do, which is to lead the congregation, unstrap my guitar, step up to the podium and give you a sermon. (laughs) So it's like the Jason show nonstop. So I apologize. I'm here because there was a need uh, last minute, not because I'm like I want them to have as much of me as they can get. Uh, But okay, well, all right. Don't tell me that too much, though, or I'll, I'll overstay my welcome. I'll push that too far. Um, but I am excited to to uh, offer some thoughts, some more thoughts from Exodus. And this passage especially that we're going to look at together today has been, man, it's kind of like undone me. It's left me in pieces. Like I, I feel like there's some, there's some realities about life in God's world and God's presence within that world uh, that have, I've I've forgotten, uh, have went dormant maybe in me, that I think these words have uh, awoken. Um, so I'm excited. I hope the same will happen for you. But we're, we're planning to spend the summer in Exodus, like all summer. Um, and that's not enough time to like teach through all Exodus, but we can at least get the gist, uh, have a few sermons uh, from it over the summer. Um, and I learned that we're not the only church doing that. That's really cool. I learned of some other churches that are also going through Exodus over the summer. So we are on the cutting edge of homiletics, like sermon giving. Um, last week, <clears throat> uh, remember like Friday Night Lights? Like last week on Friday Night Lights or uh, last week on Varsity Blues? I don't know. That wasn't even a show. But last week... I walked us through the first chapter and 10 verses of the next chapter. And I gave the title, Bidden or Not Bidden, which is, the, uh, which is what's written on uh, Carl Jung's tombstone, Swiss uh, psychologist. Um, he, he has written, Bidden or Not Bidden, You Are Present. And I, I read that from last week to jog your memory if you, if you were here. If not, the idea is we found the people of God, the uh, elect, so to speak, uh, in a very tough spot under an oppressive uh, king who was, he, he had three different moves to stop the growth of this people that we know from reading, I described that it's God that's causing this flourishing Uh, But this king tried three different ways to stop their growth. One was to work them to death, uh, to rip away their vitality and ability to procreate, I guess, or at least keep them quiet. Um, That didn't work, so he enlisted like the hospital, so to speak, the the midwives, to kill any male child they saw at birth. That didn't work because they believed in the power of God. It says they feared God and their imaginations were open to other possibilities. So they rejected that command and let the kids live. So finally, the king said to all of his people, if you see a pregnant Israelite woman, keep your eye on her. If you find her with a boy, take that child, dump it into the into the garbage, basically drown it. Um, But the chapter ended with. Uh, the daughter of that king um, receiving one of these Hebrew children that whose mom was trying to save her son. And it was kind of a like a desperate attempt 
to keep her boy alive, she put him in an ark. Uh, the word is teva in Hebrew. It's the same word for the ark, like the story of Noah, this family that's saved through water. And this little Hebrew child is discovered by the daughter of the king. And it says, we see her having compassion on this child. And she receives him from his little ark out of the water. And in doing so, like, like the nail in the coffin for that kingdom, um, because this child is, is Moses, who, is, who we're going to spend time with this afternoon. Um, but this week is different. Um, there is a turn in the story that's really, it's been, a, it's been a source of theological reflection, perhaps aggravation <laughs> for the church, for the people who have, have held these texts as scripture, for a long time. Um, and I, I have to say, I'm not up to the task. Uh, no one really is when they open God's word. I feel like it's a, it's a daunting, kind of daring thing to do to open scripture and presume to make it clear for others. Um, but today especially, as we'll see, uh, the title today is God Saw, God Knew, which is a quotation from the end of chapter 2 of Exodus. Um, but are you familiar with, with this idea? Uh, uh, I don't know if the cool kids did this, and I just missed the boat when I was a youngster. Maybe adults do this. But you collect bugs, and you, you put them in a, like a case with styrofoam, and you pin them down, and you open their wings, and then you like identify their different parts and their, what is it, like their genus and their species or whatever. It's called like p- pinning and staging, I think. Bugs. You familiar with this from like your your field trip to whatever the museum as a kid? Um, but the idea is you can take these butterflies or beetles or whatever it is, pin them down and study them and derive like clarity from what you see. You study them. Now the problem is when it comes to the way people, especially people like us in a in a culture that is has a lot of scientific like bent to everything we look at, everything is looked at through the lens of science for, for many of us, even if we don't want that to be the case. It is the case in our society. We tend to approach God somewhat like this. We tend to think of God as one who can be sort of pinned down, opened up, studied, and make sense of. And probably now that you see I'm saying that, you're starting to get frightened and wonder, well, what are you saying? We can't know God? That's not what I'm saying. But there's a limit to what we can grasp about God, and that is intentional. There are, there is much, I should say, about God which escapes our ability to even dream. He's not like a project that we just figure out. If you're sitting there thinking, well, that's not true because I have figured God out, I would just say to you, just stay tuned. (laughs) Because you will take a turn in your life where all of the sudden who God is, who you thought God was and how you expected him to behave, how he ought to behave according to you, uh, it won't go that way. And all of a sudden you'll find yourself like, oh, wow, I can't 
pin God down, study him and make him make sense of him, put him in a case and put him in my pocket and then bring him out when I need him so I can describe what he's like to others. To describe God is to kind of have a failure of language at some level. The basics are clear, though. He's present. He's loving. He's powerful. He's kind. And these are the things we latch on to. But the ways that he is those things is sometimes confusing. Does that make sense to you? If it doesn't, that's okay. I'm alone. I've been alone before. Um, but okay, so I want to summarize for, for you what happens after that child in the ark is brought out of the water to, and lives with the protection of the royal household. What happens next? We can't read all of it. Just very quickly, I'm going to try He grows up as an Egyptian. He grows up in this Israelite, this Hebrew, uh, is raised under Pharaoh's daughter. Eventually, when his mom has nursed him, she hands him back over to Pharaoh's daughter, and he grows up an Egyptian. But the text is not super clear, but there's something that he understands about his own identity. Um, And we're just told one day he goes out to see the Israelites. He goes out to see them. And what he finds is an Egyptian kind of gang captain, what is like a chain gang captain, the, the taskmaster, beating a Hebrew. And Moses, it seems, has this impulse to deliver. And what he does is he kills that Egyptian. I don't know. It says that he's striking the Hebrew, this Egyptian. That can mean a death blow. It's what God's going to do to Egypt, actually. He's going to strike Egypt. But, but we're told that he's striking this Egypt. And Moses, we're told, he's very, it's so human. I love how these people in Scripture are not like floating above the ground. They're people. It says he looks kovako, like he looks this way and that way. And he kills the Egyptian and he hides his body in the sand. And he thinks, apparently... And the New Testament will say this was an act of faith, which is really interesting. But he thinks apparently that this is like delivering the Hebrews. He's kind of like acting like a Hebrew, but he's an Egyptian. Well, later he goes back out again to see his people, we're told. And this time it's two Hebrews fighting. And the one that's in the wrong, Moses confronts. And he says, who do you think you are? Do you think you're a judge for us? You're in a, which is a bold thing to say to this Egyptian who's Pharaoh's son, uh, Pharaoh's daughter's son, adopted son. But who do you think you are? Do you think you're our, our boss? You're the judge? Moses immediately becomes frightened because he, he now knows what he did to that Egyptian is known. So Moses runs away. And what usually happens, how men meet their wives so far in the Bible is you find a well. <laughs> because usually the daughters are coming out to get water to give drink to the, to the animals. Moses finds a well and he's there and he sees these daughters coming to, to take care of her, their father's uh, uh, flock. And these other shepherds show up and they push him out of the way and they kick him out and they say, we're going to take that water for our flock. 
Well, what is Moses? Moses is this guy who wants to put an end to problems. So he raises up and he pushes those clowns out of the way and he delivers these daughters. Well, the family is so happy that they give Moses one of these uh, daughters named Zipporah. She's a Midianite. She's not an Egyptian. She's not a Hebrew. She's a Midianite. And they have a child and the child is named Gershom which means it's two Hebrew words brought together. Ger, which means uh, stranger. Sham, which means there. Stranger there. <laughs> Your kid's name is stranger there. Why? Because Moses is a stranger there. But he makes this comfortable, presumably comfortable life. And you imagine like that saga in Egypt's over. I'm safe. I got my wife. I got Gershom. And, and he takes up being a shepherd. But just before that, something amazing happens at the end of chapter 2. Remember last week we were talking about bidden or not bidden, God is present. And it didn't seem like God was acting early on in Exodus in any like direct way. Well, look, all of a sudden, God gets involved in a way that's actually frightening if you ask me, based on my experience with God. But look at this. During those many days, that is those days when Moses ran away, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned, here we go again, because of their slavery, because of their service. Remember that? He made them serve the, the Pharaoh because of their service. And they cried out for help. Their cry... Uh, for rescue is, I'm not sure I'd use that. The ESV has said their cry for rescue from, from slavery came up to God. Now, they're crying out for the same reason. There's been a regime change. There's a new king. But this new king has done nothing to deal with the fact that these people are being treated like garbage, slaughtered, their kid, whatever. It's still going on. And it's many years later. And they cry out. Their cry went up, the text says. But the text does not say their cry was sent up. They're not praying, God deliver us. I'm sure there's not much time for religion based on the way they've been treated. But their cry goes up. No one's saying... Yet, in this story, God help us. But they, as we're going to find out, do not need to. (laughs) I think of this line in Isaiah where he says, before you even started to talk, I was responding. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. God knew. Very simple. I love verse 25. God saw the children of Israel. God knew. Look at the verbs for God. God, they're crying out. Not going to church and praying necessarily. They're crying out under their burden. God heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. Let's take it just in order. God God heard what's going on. Okay, so He has been dialed in. He has been present. He's known what's going on. 
We knew that already, but it was kind of like we were hoping that God, do you ever wish, do you ever, like you're a good-hearted person, and you say, of course, God is working. Because you, you have to say that because you're a Christian. You have to say God's working. But do you ever wish that God would act more seismically, more directly, more clearly? Just act, right? Oh, no, I'm fine. I want God to act. Then the brother or sister says, oh, he is acting. No, no, no. What I mean is I want God to get involved now in a very clear and decisive way. God is about to do that. But he remembered. Okay, so God forgot. (laughs) Because just like the Israelites have been busy with all that Pharaoh has given them to do, God has also been busy and has forgotten about what he promised. Oh, that's right. I told that Mesopotamian family that I'd bless them and deliver them and use them. Right? Wrong. (laughs) That's not what God is like. Remembered here does not imply that God forgot. It's like he's calling to mind or maybe God had not forgotten. God had made a promise. And that is what is driving God to get involved now. It's compassion, of course. It's love. That's how this whole people of Israel came to even be. Deuteronomy, we learn, it's not because you're great, it's because I loved you. But this is because of his faithfulness to a promise he has made. He's going to get involved. He remembered what he told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw what was going on. And this last line here, uh, God knew, is is a deep phrase. God knew. The text doesn't say God knew their pain. Or God saw their pain. What did God see? He saw them. He sees. He knows. I know what you're going through. And of course, know here, and it rarely is in the Bible, know does not mean information has been passed along to God and he knows about how they're treating him, like reading a report. No, no, no. He knows what they're going through. He sees them. I see you. I know. I feel it. I experience it. I participate in what you're going through. God saw. God knew. Now, as a reader of this text, I needed to know that God saw them. That God knew what was going on. And I'm sure they're going to be encouraged ultimately that that was the case. But now we know God hasn't been on a vacation. He has been waiting for a moment to intervene. Now we look back at this child being born and the the threat of the Pharaoh and all of the way this story has made these twists and turns. And now God is going to get involved after this Moses has been on the run for 40 years and made a nice, safe life for himself. Now God is going to get involved. It's about time, we're thinking. But this is the idea. God is not blind or deaf or hard-hearted. He feels, he knows It's called like the divine pathos, the suffering God. He knows. He shares. Isaiah says, 
Don't say, Israel, my life is hidden from God. Don't say that. It may feel like that, but it's not the case. And God shall get involved when the time is right. I think I could go on a limb and say the same is true for you and for me. Okay, how you doing? Okay, there's enough for you where you could actually respond to that question. It's not just rhetorical now. It's awesome. Uh, or there's few enough of you. Um, now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, uh, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Okay. Now, we're, we're seeing something happen here in this, this Moses' life. One we want to keep in mind, he was delivered through water. He is already in this story. We won't know this until we read on, but we know because we've read Exodus. I hope we've read Exodus. Um, that he, in his, his own body, is Israel. He is going through what Israel will go through, being brought through the water. And now we find Moses, for the last several decades, has been living as a shepherd. Now, shepherds don't tend in those days to own their own flock. He's taking care of somebody else's flock, his father-in-law. It's a good life. It's a hard life, but it puts food on the table. And he takes care of his father's, his father-in-law's flock because he's going to be a shepherd of someone else's flock for the rest of his life. He's been living in obscurity, fixing his own way in the world, accepting the gifts that God has given him, but he doesn't know that what's happening in his life is preparing him to do something that is going to rock his world. This shepherding is a preview of this young Hebrew child raised as an Egyptian, kicked out. He's not accepted by the Hebrews. He's not accepted by the Egyptians. And he's living with the Midianites. Talk about not knowing who you are and having identity challenges. This man has been through a lot. All because he's just tried to help people. <laughs> Which is amazing. That's what happens, by the way. Um, but it says that he goes out, the, the Hebrew phrase, achar b'midbar, uh, on the far side of the, the wilderness. Uh, or or it's, it's not exactly clear. On the west, maybe far west facing east, behind, some have suggested beyond. I don't think it's beyond. But this is setting a scene. This guy is going deep into the woods, so to speak. He's not going to church, but he's going to have an encounter with God. This soon-to-be hero of the faith is going deep into the woods. We're told he comes to Horeb, which is the mountain of God. Now, our minds are probably bursting as readers, all that's happening. And he looks 
And he's, he's out there with this flock, living his life. He went too far this time, whatever. Maybe he heard about this mountain of God and he wanted to check it out. Who knows? But he's out there and he sees Hasenet. Hasenet. It's the word translated there, bush. Hasenet. Now, Hasenet sounds a lot like Sinai, Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai, presumably the mount, this very mountain, will be exploding with fire in a few chapters. But here it's just a little flame, apparently on one single Hasenet, one little bush burning. And Moses looks, and he does not say to himself, it's God. I'm at the mountain of God. He just says, now that's odd. <laughs> that's bizarre. You know, I, I'm gonna, the flock's good for a minute. I've got to check this out. And he's, you, you can imagine this man all alone, deep in the woods. He doesn't know what he's about to get into. But he looks and he sees this bush, and he wonders, how is this happening? Like, have you ever seen a forest fire? We had a lot of those in Washington. I mean, it gets your attention. But I don't know, this is bizarre. Like one bush on fire. And you're out there. Maybe it's dark and the light and the sound. And he walks over and sees it. And it's not burned up. This is deep, isn't it? Isn't it deep? Aren't your, isn't your mind almost like, what am I supposed to do with any of this? It's so deep, everything happening. This man deep in the wilderness who's had a life on the run encounters a bush that's on fire, but the bush is not being burnt up. Apparently, the bush is not fuel for the flame, which doesn't make much sense at all. And people have wondered over and over, what is the bush after all? One really interesting proposal is that the bush represents Israel. Later we'll find that Israel will suffer fire and God will be with them and they won't be burned up and they're going to be tried by fire and Egypt is even later called the furnace. And so maybe the idea here, the image is that this bush is like Israel that's on fire, but they're not burning up because the fire, in fact, is God with them. Maybe, maybe, but that might be pushing it like the butterflies a little too far. We have to take the whole scene in. A burning bush that's not consumed is just odd. But let's read on. When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see God, to see God called out to him, Moses, Moses, and he said, "Here I am." Then he said, "Do not come near. Take off your sandals. Take your sandals off your feet." For the place which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at, and here in Hebrew it says, Ha Elohim. He was afraid to look at the God. He didn't know this was a God, this burning bush. But all of a sudden he's addressed by name. And he says, I am the God of, and he uses singular, not I'm the God of y'all's fathers. He says, I'm the God of your father, Moses. You are a Hebrew. You've wondered who you are? You're a Hebrew. 
I'm the God of your family. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Imagine the surprise. (laughs) You see something that doesn't fit in God's world. You walk over to check it out, and it starts speaking to you, and it knows you, and it knows where you're from, and it knows where you're going, and it knows where where you've come from with this flock from Egypt. He's this bush has this man's number and he's terrified because now he's doing the math. This is a deity. This is a God. Like this is not safe, which is the general, like typical response to seeing God. It ain't safe. God ain't safe. He's not a puppy with a leash. We cuddle him. He's dangerous like a fire. That doesn't burn things up, but is hot, apparently, among us. Moses walks over to see it. He says, take your sandals off because you're standing on holy ground. Well, what makes a ground holy? Is this place more holy than any other? Is this place right here more holy than the grocery store, Albertsons down the street? What makes a place holy? Well, God. God makes a place holy. But there's this idea with holiness that, you know, have you ever heard the term holy roller? Is that a thing here? Oh, we used to say holy roller. You know it because you're from the Midwest. Oh, that dude's a holy roller. They used to call me that. Man, my friends, when I became a Christian, they called me bishop. They called me pastor. They called me holy roller. Like they had all, all kinds of holy rollers, like someone who's like, they keep all the commands and they're just holy. They're saints. So there's that kind of way to think about holiness. But what Exodus is going to do to us is present holiness as something slightly more dangerous and compelling. There's a book written in 1917 by uh, Rudolf Otto uh, called The Idea of the Holy. And he said something really interesting. He said that holiness in the Christian scriptures... Is, is like something that pushes us away because it's terrifying like a fire and it summons us forward. It's like it pushes us back and we're frightened by it, yet there's something in us that wants to draw near. I think that's helpful. That's what it's like, I think, to encounter God even now. That there's something like that when we encounter God where it's like, boy, I don't know, this is freaky, but I want to see. It's like I feel safe, but I don't really feel safe because I'm not used to this. Like this is bizarre. The world is a different place now all of a sudden. The world is filled with bushes that burn but don't get burnt up. Isn't that what it's like when you encounter the Lord? The world becomes populated with things that you previously didn't think were possible. And it's terrifying. I don't know about you, but when I encountered God for the first time, I was scared. (laughs) I was scared by what I was seeing. It wasn't playtime for me. I was shook that the world isn't as I thought it was. It doesn't belong to me. Things I didn't think were possible actually go on and happen, whether I think about it or not. But this is what Moses is experiencing, something like this. God is like this fire, burning, but no form 
always changing. Think of a flame. It's always moving and raising. And it's what God's like. It's frightening, but it, it, it can make your house warm or it could burn it down. <laughs> right? It's kind of like that. Okay. Really, how are you? Yeah? Okay. Uh, let's, let's read on. We're, we're getting to the end here. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivites, the Hivites, in Hebrew. Hivite? Okay. The Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And now, look at this. Look at verse 10, or verse 9. And now. Now, I put and now in there because the ESV left it out. Shame on them. <laughs> But it belongs there. It says in, in verse 9 and in verse 10, they both begin with va'eta, and now, or so now. It says, and now, uh, let's see, verse 9. And now, look, the cry of the people of Israel has come down, and I've seen what's going on. And now, come, <laughs> I will send you to Pharaoh. You may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you. Or really, I am with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God or worship God on this mountain. Look at all of the verbs for God. He, it says, God, I have surely seen. I have heard, I have known, I have come down to deliver and to bring up. And now, I've seen all that. And now, Moses, go. <laughs> What's God's response? I've come because I've been moved. I heard them. They didn't say, God, help us, but I heard it. And I've come to help out. And now, come, I'm sending you. Now I've come down, and now you go. What's God's way of delivering? This poor, used to be Hebrew, used to be Egyptian, used to be Hebrew, now a Midianite shepherd. (laughs) I'm sending you. That's how I get involved. I'm sending you. He comes down and he finds this guy who has stumbled into something. He had no idea what ever happened in his life. But he's confronted again with this story that he put behind him a long time ago. And he says, I don't have any business going to the king. This guy knows people in Egypt, I'm sure. He says, I can't go do that. They didn't want me last time I was there. I tried to do that one time and they ratted me out. The Hebrews aren't, you know, they're not looking for me now. Who am I? How am I supposed to do that? 
What is God's response to Moses? What would you like your pastor to say when you're like, I can't do it? You want your pastor to say, but brother or sister, you're awesome. I love you. You're the greatest. You have so many gifts. It's amazing what you can do if you just trust God. You're awesome. You can do it. That's what, that's what we want. Moses gets none of that garbage. He just gets, I'm with you. That's all you need to know. You, you don't need to be great. I'm not telling you you're great. I'm telling you I'm with you. That's what it is. I'm with you. And you know how you know that it's me who called you and that this isn't a dream and this is real? When you're back here with all of them and you're worshiping, then you'll know, oh, that was real. That happened. He did what I didn't think I could do. He did. He did what I didn't think I could do. Because in and of himself, Moses ain't going to bring the Israelites out from Egypt. He already tried. And it landed him a job in the far side of the wilderness 40 years down the road. He says, I'm with you. I'm with you. Now, that will be important. I'm with you is a preview of who God is. Okay. Thinking caps on. This will be the most... <laughs> Will's like, I already had it on. I'm already fried. Okay. <laughs> but, but wait. Thinking caps on. Because this is something we're going to go deep down for one second. And I've worked hard to make this as accessible as I can. Okay, you, you ready? We're going to learn about who God is. We're going to learn his name here for the first time. And this is magical, what's happening. God, as it turns out, has a name. His name ain't God. Just like your name ain't man or woman, or human. Hey, human. Like, who am I talking to? You, that human over there. My wife, the human. Like, no, she has a name. God is like what human is to us. It's a category of being. The Hebrew word is Elohim. It's a God. He's not the only God in the Bible. The Bible is full of Elohim. Like angels, spiritual beings, sons of God. But then there's the great high Elohim, who we call just simply God, as if God was his name. Dear God. It's like saying dear human. Well, he has a name. Now, it's a name that isn't just like you have like the the baby names when you're pregnant, right? You'll find like God's name listed in there because God's name, like many Hebrew names, tells you everything you need to know about what he's like and what he shall always be like. God's name is in itself who he is. Right? He has a name. It ain't God. Watch. Then Moses said, Okay, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me well, what's his name what shall I say to them well, Moses has to have some credibility what you know he, he didn't grow necessarily he didn't doesn't seem like he grew up knowing God's name I don't think Moses knows God's name here some people suggest he forgot I don't think he knows I think I think he's like who am I supposed to tell them is sending you're a bush <laughs> You're, or are you the fire or are you both this is weird 
Who are you? Who am I supposed to tell them that whose power do I come in that they'll respect a guy like me? Because those who remember me ain't following me out. So who do I tell them sent me? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Well, that's helpful. It makes me think of Popeye. Remember that, Popeye? I am's what I am's or something like that, right? Uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people. I am has sent me to you. (laughs) That's not a name. We already saw a form of this name earlier. We said, I will be with you or I'm with you. The same word here. The phrase here in Hebrew is ehye, asher ehye. Ehye, asher ehye. I am who ehye. I am. He says earlier, ehye. It's ehye imach. I'm with you. I am ehye imach, with you. Who are you? Ehye, asher ehye. Ehye. I am who I am. (laughs) This is what Moses is to tell the people. I am sent you. Three done. Confused? You should be. God also said, say, said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Okay, there we go. His name is the Lord. You're supposed to tell them I am sent you, but tell them my name is the Lord. Well, that ain't a name either. That does not help. Uh, and I'm not going to get into all of that. That's how they t- translate into Greek. Uh, there's a tradition that translates God's name as the Lord. But what we find here in Hebrew isn't the Lord. It's something like Yahweh. He says, tell them, I am, eh, yeah, asher, eh, yeah, has sent you. So say to this people, Yahweh has sent you. Now, eh, yeah, is I am in Hebrew. Yahweh would be he is in Hebrew. It's like he's saying, say to the people, the one y'all call he is sent you. That's my name. Confused? Who should I say sent me? I am. I am. In the book of Revelation, when we see and hear God, we see and hear Jesus, he says, I am the one who was, who is and who shall come. I am. I am all. I am. I will always be how I am. It's not very helpful until we begin to probe it a bit. We look at the fire. Now let's bring back in the scene for a moment. His name is, in Hebrew, he is. He, you wouldn't go and say, I am sent you, because that's only what God would say. God would say, I am. We'd say, he is. Follow me? He is sent me to you. The Lord, Yahweh, sent me to you. His name means he is. He is forever. What does that mean, he is? Well, let's bring in the fire. You're standing there and you're seeing this deep mystery before you. And God is telling you, I am. 
those two realities, this bush isn't just an attention getter. It's the scene for understanding what God is like. He is mysterious. It is like a bush on fire, but he will always be who he is, and he is with you. And he does not change. He is the one who is. You are because of your dad. We celebrate Father's Day today. He is, he was, and he shall come again. He is the one. And you pair that with this bush, and you're thinking, this is what God is like. Are you lost? You're with the company of thousands of years of really keen biblical interpreters who have tried to make sense of who, what is God like? What we can say about him is he is, and it is deep. And it's what Moses needs to know so that he can do what God has called him to. Now, when I say God is a mystery, some of us want to check out. Because what pops into our head with mystery is what? Sherlock Holmes, right? A detective story. That God is a mystery we figure out like a puzzle. But that's not what I mean by God is a mystery. I mean that the further you go in, the deeper and more profound the encounter. Imagine going into a house and you enter a series of corridors going in and each room you pass through is bigger than the last one until you finally get into a room where you're saying, there's no way this room is in that house because the room is bigger than the house itself. That's what it's like to encounter God. It's beyond our ability to make sense of. And there's something frightening about that. I remember as a 19-year-old, I was already finished with life at 19 years old, um, the most disrespectful man, young man, y'all ever met. Like, I was disrespectful to my mom. I didn't keep jobs. I was just like a wreck. My life was a wreck. My whole life was hip-hop. It's all, it was the little flame burning in my life. Through a series of bizarre events, I started reading the Bible. This is the first book I ever read. (laughs) Like, I think I read a comic book when I was a kid, but I made fun of people who read for fun. Like, that's stupid. Who reads, right? And all of a sudden, I'm reading the Bible. I was a D-minus student, totally lost in life. Kicked out of my mom's place, back into my mom's place, kicked out again, fired from this job, like lost, high, drunk, like don't treat anyone nice. And I'm reading the Bible. And it freaked people out. (laughs) Here's what was more freaky. I had a friend who had a dream one night that that he was taken like into hell by spiritual beings. He had this dream that was such an encounter for him with God that he was more violent than I was. And this dude, like long hair, long beard, drug dealer, like shaved his head, lost a bunch of weight, and all he would do is go around reading scripture and preaching to people about Jesus. This is my boyhood best friend. And there's Jason right next to him. And we're reading scripture together. It freaked people out. And I was freaked out. Like, what is happening 
I remember like, is this, is this God what's happening? Because this is bizarre. Like the world is, I get emotional, think about it. It's, the world is a different place now that I'm reading these words of truth. I'm seeing what's possible. All of a sudden the world is a place where bushes burn and don't burn up. I can't get my head around what's happening. It didn't stop there. I had another friend come and start reading with us and another friend come and join us and another friend. There's like 10 of us from this small town. Everyone knows who we are. They're like, remember those dudes that used to like tip over the soda machine? Like they're all reading the Bible. Keep your kids away from them. It's weird. It's weird. People would run when they saw us coming. This is before I even found the the church. We were a church. Like all of my friends are like, their lives are changing. I remember having conversations with friends and seeing it click. Like, you're right. I'm leaving this way of life that I've been living. I think there's something with this Jesus. And I'm moving toward it. And I'm freaking out. My friends are freaking out. Everyone around, our parents think we join a cult, but it's just us, so I guess we're the cult. But, but this is what happens when one encounters God. It's disorienting. What happens when we encounter God is all of a sudden the lives we used to think made a bunch of sense, we don't care so much. It's like I've, I've seen the world with its texture and color and the reality of a God who is knowable but beyond grasping completely. And He loves us. And he wants to use all of that power to change us and to use us to change others. Well, I got to tell you, our evangelist was tickled pink when we all came to church and they had like how many baptisms because we're all lining up. Baptize all of us. We've been reading the Bible like crazy on our own for the last year. We think we know more than y'all, which wasn't true, by the way. But that's what happened when God gets a hold of one's life. It's not just religion. It's an interaction and encounter and participation with a profound mystery who is beyond calculation, yet knowable. See, Moses needed this encounter because what he's being called to, and if we read on, he's like, I don't want to go. That sucks. What you're telling me to do sounds awful. I'm going to die doing that. Moses ain't the only one to reject God. Anytime God summons one beyond their situation, humans always resist. We say, no, no, that's weird. No, I ain't doing that. I ain't stopping that behavior. I ain't changing that. I ain't giving that up. I ain't going to do that thing. I ain't doing the things you're asking of me. It's weird. You know, the problem is God insists. (laughs) God insists. And he pursues us until we yield to that mystery. Until we yield in trust to him. God comes after us and we resist because we're scared. God doesn't just disrupt our lives. He ruins them. The lives we knew. It's not just an interruption in the way we were living. To encounter God means I ain't going back the way I came. (laughs) Life is different from here on out. Anyone in this room 
who has become a disciple of Jesus knows what I mean here in some form. We had that moment where maybe it wasn't a moment, maybe it was a series of moments of wrestling with, it's hard to give in to something I've never experienced before. Moses has to learn that too. The greatest people in Scripture has to learn that. We're going to close. How are you? Okay. Two more slides and we're done. I promise. Three minutes. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Rather than being an arbitrary but convenient sign to attract Moses' attention, the bush is most likely integral, indeed foundational, to the story as a whole. It's easy to forget that. In terms of the story scenario, the voice that says, I am who I am, is still the voice that is speaking from the fiery bush. If we read I am who I am as analogous to the bush which burns without being destroyed, then the bush is a visual symbol that illustrates something of the meaning of the words. The the purpose of I am who I am would not be to explain anything but to engage Moses in such a way that he is drawn into a deeper level of the encounter with God that is already taking place. It's not just information or to get Moses' attention. The whole scene is to draw Moses into a world much bigger than the one he thought about. I love that. Not everyone loves that. I love that. It's why I'm here, honestly. Later in the, in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, the core confession of Israel. Hero Israel, Yahweh. He is. He is our God. Yahweh, the He is, is one. The name of God is this very God, the one who is, is our God. He has a name. His name is Yahweh. And every time we say Yahweh, every time you read in Scripture, the Lord, It's where you find in Hebrew, Yahweh. And it conjures up this whole story. The deep, powerful God who is for us and delivers us. He alone is our God. One level down and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. One more level down. Look what Paul says. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The Apostle Paul says... He's talking about the church. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, through whom we exist. You see what Paul just did? The one God who is He slid Jesus Christ right in there, making the mystery all the more profound. God isn't the he is the God of Israel isn't just a bush on fire. He's also a person. Jesus Christ in the early church isn't like a prophet from God or a manifestation of God. He is God. And now our brains are blown because that deep, mysterious God took on 
flesh and blood and bone and dirt and stink and filth and all that we experience in pain becoming one of us and going to the cross. And somehow the whole cross, does the cross and the resurrection make sense to you? If so, on what basis? It's a mystery. How are we saved by something so insane as the death of God on the cross? God works in ways that are tough to get our heads around. But we find ourselves drawn to trust Him, to step closer to the bush, to come closer to the cross, and to encounter a God who's going to lead us on a ride far more bizarre than I think we ever thought when we first came to church. The Lord's Supper is more of the same thing. The bread and the cup which we share now is a participation in the life of that God. It's amazing. What God is going to do through Moses, what God did through the apostles, what I believe Jesus is trying to do through us is to draw us in and to send us out as his people. As people who don't explain God like a butterfly, but give witness to his great power and I hope for you. I don't apologize that this was deep. We have to find ways to stretch our imaginations to take in the portrait of God that is in Scripture. It ain't all paint by the numbers. I'm sorry for that, in a sense. I wish I could make it easy. But see, these texts engage us at a level which demands full participation. Sitting with them, working them over, talking about them. But I think in doing this, we draw nearer to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this bread and the cup. So obvious and so mysterious. We thank you for this, this, this bread and drink which comes from our experience and communicates to us sustenance. It communicates being fed and satisfied and energized. Yet how it is energizing us is not by just mere food, but we see that it is actually the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord which gives us sustenance, food, and energy. We thank you, God. We participate with trembling hands because we know we stand on holy ground. We come before you, God. We come to this meal rejoicing and frightened because we know You've welcomed us and You are sending us. Cause us, God, to look to You, to trust You. We pray, Father, that this meal would strengthen our souls, so to speak, would make us strong and faithful. We pray all this through Christ Jesus. Amen.